Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. from God, and that's who we want to talk about this morning. Let me start by asking, what is it that you're hoping for? What gets you up in the morning? What motivates you to keep on going, especially when life becomes difficult? It seems like today we live in a world of hopelessness, whether it's religiously, culturally, politically, people are wondering, what's the use? Like Pandora's box, we can feel hopeless. You may recall from Greek mythology that Pandora's box was an artifact in Greek mythology which contained all the evils in the world. And in curiosity, a young lady named Pandora opened the box, letting out all the evils and troubles of the world, slamming it shut just as hope was beginning to come out, but yet trapping it inside. And sometimes, if we're honest, in the dark night of our soul, it can feel like that. It can feel like we live in a world without hope. Yet even in this difficult world, in our stressful lives, you and I must recognize that hope still lives. For many of us, hope is a source of strength and motivation. We have a hope and a goal or a dream, something that we want to attain. It could be a better future. It could be to finish school, to provide for our family, a positive change in our life, stability, recovery. Maybe it's a healing. But what exactly is hope? Are we using the same phrase as what scripture speaks of? Is hope just a faith in myself or is it a a faith in a circumstance or something uh, outside of ourselves? Is it something inside ourselves that we can make happen? Or is it all up to fate? Or is it just wishful thinking? Is hope just recognizing that the outcome sometimes, many times, is outside of our hands? One young lady defined hope as a feeling or state of being that one day things will get better. Haven't you ever thought that? One day things will get better. If I just had this, if I got this race, if I got this job, if I could just date this person, Mary, things will just get better. It's like that old phrase, one day my ship will come in. That's been the major selling point of lottery sales today. If I could just win the lottery, that person that just won the one in what, it was New Jersey, New York, somewhere, $372 million was their take-home pay. If I just had that, my hopes are in something that just one day may come. Yet I'm here to tell you this morning that hope needs to be based on something or someone. Or it just becomes wishful thinking. The fulfillment of our wants, our desires, our dreams, our aspirations need to be anchored where it just becomes elusive and unattainable and we move from one point of our life to other always looking for something just when we think it's in our grasp and it's just like the, like the wind or like the fog that just fades away and it just uh, materializes and then it's gone. And we've done that. Maybe our marriages were like that. Maybe our jobs were like that. All these things. This is our happiness. This is my joy. This is my hope. Only to see it crush your dreams. And now you're living with the scars and the pain 
of what once was hope is now a scar. One question that comes to mind when asking others about hope was, is faith and hope interchangeable? And many times we do that. What's your faith in? What's your hope in? But are they different or are they same? We say we have faith and we have hope, but what are they? Scripture we know says there's faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these are love. So if these three things, what is faith and hope? And I believe many times we're using those words, but we're not using them as the one who is indescribable has developed them or has created them. You see, faith is not a belief in ourselves or others, but it's a confident trust in the promises and in the person of God. Let me say it again. Faith is not in something or someone, but it's in the one. It's a confident trust in the person and, and the person and character, the promises of God. Whereas hope is not wishful thinking. Many times, I hope I get this. I, I hope I get that job. I, I hope she'll say yes. I hope I get into that college. And really what we're saying is we wish. But hope when it comes to scripture it's not about wishful thinking, but a confident expectation that God will fulfill his promises. When, so when scripture tells us to have faith and to have hope, it's saying be confident, be confident to trust in the person and promises of God. Whereas hope says, put your confident expectation that the God will do it. And I want to introduce you to that God this morning. You see, both of those are a gift from God. It's not something that you can attain or others can do for you, but it's a gift from God. And it's based on his person and on his character. You see, people are hoping and have a faith, a desire for financial uh, savior, for, for, for a political rescuer, one who will help them with their relationships, one who will help them with their career, their retirement, their satisfaction. But you and I don't need a guru or a life coach or a life motivator. You see, what you and I need is a savior, a savior to put our faith and our hope in. It cannot be in the lotto. It cannot be in your retirement. It cannot be in your job. It cannot be in your children, or in my case, the grandchildren. It has to be in someone in which we can confidently trust and expect. This morning, I want to narrow down three things that I believe encapsulate all of our hopes. You'll see these as you bring your attention to the screen is the first one is you and I hope for restoration. We are aware that things are not as they should be. We recognize that things are broken and many times are beyond repair. We desire healing and recovery and a better life. We see that in our political and cultural battles and fights. The second is mercy and grace. We, de we desire mercy and grace. We hope for that. We're aware that we do not want what we deserve. And we desire something better. Shame and guilt rule and paralyze our decision making in our life. Many of you here today are holding on to those things. And then righteousness and justice is the third one. We desire that. We hope for that. We're aware that evil exists and long for fairness and accounting to make things right. These are the things that you and I hope for. The things that we desire when it really comes down and boils down to it. But the question is, how do we get to this point? How do we get to the point that we cannot even speak to one another? Where families are divided. We, we're afraid to share our opinions and our hopes and thoughts and dreams. Afraid that someone's going to attack us and challenge us. Well, first I want to point out that in the beginning, life was not hopeless. 
Scripture tells us that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and he saw everything that he made. And behold, the Bible says it was very good. So hope and faith was very alive as they expected in the promises of God and they trusted in God. Pastor Milton Vincent in his gospel primer sums up the words of scripture when he writes that our God is immense beyond imagination and that he measured the entire span of the universe with the span of his hand and that he's unimaginably awesome in all his perfections and he's absolutely righteous and holy and just in all his ways. That's the God I want to introduce to you this morning. Do you know that God? Do you know that creator? It says that he's also been unbelievably good and merciful to us as the creator and sustainer of our life. And that every breath, every heartbeat, every function of every organ in our body is a gift from him. You and I don't think of that as we get up and we take, you know, just for granted that we're breathing, that we're walking. Knowing that many in this world do not take that for granted. But you and I ought to realize that each breath, each movement of our chest and our lungs... Every function of every organ, every heartbeat is another gift from God to us. And every legitimate pleasure that you and I experience is a gift from his loving hand. All that I am and all that I owe, he writes, is to him. For he is our life. And we move and we have our being in his good pleasure. This is the God I want to introduce to you this morning. And this wonderful God is the most supremely worthy object of our admiration and honor and delight in all the universe. And that he's created you and I. And this is what we need to see is that when he created us in the beginning, he created us with the intention that you and I might glorify him by finding our soul's delight in him and by living in joyful obedience. This is the God that I want to introduce to you this morning. The one who created us and gives us the gift of life. That we may look on him and worship and focus on him. You see, scripture points to a God that is both simple and complex, inventive and creative, intelligent and purposeful. He's the source of justice and righteousness and love and mercy. He created man to rule over creation and to look to God as the supreme object of admiration. All the goodness that you and I desire and desire and want in this world comes from God because he is those things. Not that he gives those things, but he is those things. However, in his gospel primer, the writer captures scripture's description of our rebellion against a most holy, wonderful God. For see, you and I looked into the eyes of that God, that creator, and we shook our fist and said, no. For he writes, I could not have failed this great God more miserably than I have. And I use the first person because it's not just collectively, but I want you to understand that you and I have done this personally ourselves. Instead of giving thanks to God and humbly submitting to his rule over our life as the creator and sustainer, as the source of life, you and I have rebelled against him and we have actually sought to exalt ourselves above him. That's the indictment. For Romans chapter 1. We're knowing God. We exchange the truth about God for a lie. And you and I have done that. And going our own way and living according to our own wisdom. You and I have broken countless times. Either the letter or the spirit of every one of God's ten commandments. Let me bring your attention once again to the monitor. 
For you and I must understand what sin is. Wayne Grumman writes that sin is a failure to conform to God's moral law in our nature, in our attitude, in our actions. And you and I, many times, so I want to just take a moment here, if you could just leave that up, is I want to just, I want to dwell on this and help us to understand. For you and I think that we are, we are wrong because of our acts, because of the sins that we do. But in the end, you sin not because of your actions, but because of your attitude. In other words, it's your attitude that is wrong, that needs the adjustment. Our attitude is we are God and he is not. That was the sin of Satan and it was the sin of Adam and Eve. They did not trust in God, nor did they expect in his promises. And so what sin is, is not just our acts, but it's our attitude which comes from our heart. Hence why Jesus said, it's not that you just look, that, you, that you're an adulterer, but you're an adulterer because you look on her in your heart. You, see, you hate your brother, you murder because you hate. But see, you and I try to change our behavior all the time. But it's not behavior you need to change, it's the attitude. But the thing is, is you cannot change heart and attitude until you can change the nature. Hence why scripture says that the leopard cannot change his spots. So many people just, they bark at the thing, I'm a sinner, well, I'm not evil. I had one man tell me, but I'm not evil. I said, yes, you are. That's our very nature, born into sin. So we're not sinners because of what we do or what's in our heart. We're sinners because that's our very nature. We have rebelled against a holy God. Thinking ourselves to be wise, we've shown ourselves to be fools, Milton Vincent continues. And because of our arrogance, God has every right to damn me to everlasting experience of his terrifying wrath in the lake of fire. Is there a hell? Yes. Is it eternal? Yes. Is it conscience? Yes. And you and I have to recognize this, for this is scripture. You see, the penalty of our rebellion against our creator, he says, is death. The penalty of sin is death. And he says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. In other words, all of our good works, he says, fail. It's a gap. It's, it's something that's so long and high and deep that we cannot jump over. Our good works are not enough. Scripture says that all of our good works, even our gifts of charity, our gifts of being here, our gifts of donations, he says are like filthy rags. Why? Because he's a holy God. And it's not in our acts that we'll be judged, though we will be judged by our acts, but that's not how our penalty is because of our acts, nor our attitude, but it's in our nature. The penalty of our rebellion against our creator is death. For as the writer of the gospel primer says, so as far as myself, I'm apart from Christ. And let me say this as you listen, you and I are bound by the guilt of our sins. And you and I are also bound by the power of sin. And here's why you and I need a savior, because you and I in this entire world, the very creation has now been enslaved to our various lusts and pleasures. We seek to satisfy ourselves at the expense of others. You and I know this deepen in our hearts when we take that quiet moments to think and to consider. You see, apart from Christ, scripture tells us that you and I are utterly deserving of and we're destined for eternal punishment in the lake of fire, completely unable to save ourselves or to even make one iota of contribution to our own salvation. 
See, people, I need to let you know what Scripture tells us, that you and I are disobedient children. We're dead in our trespasses, that we're alienated from God, that we're objects of his wrath, and we're sentenced to die. And you're saying, wait, I'm here for Easter. This message is too tough, but this is the message of Easter. This is the gospel. You may be sitting here this morning, you may say, wait a second, I don't have a problem with God. I'm okay with God. But let me share with you. And this is going to be tough words. But as the worship, worship team comes up, you and I need to understand that you may not have a problem with God, but God has a problem with you. For you rebelled, each and every one of us. Even little Joel, even little Michael and Landon have already rebelled against our Creator as we were born in sin. I'd like for you to take a moment and consider that as we just sing the song, How Deep the Father's Love. Okay, we are going through the New, New City Catechism. We are on question 30, which should be up on, the, up on the screen. What is faith in Jesus Christ? And would you answer along with me, the answer being up on the board. Faith in Jesus Christ is acknowledging the truth of everything that God has revealed in his word, trusting in him, and also receiving and resting on him alone for salvation as he is offered to us in the gospel. Now, let us worship God. Would you please pray silently with me as I pray aloud. To you, Lord, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as revealed in the Bible, your sacred word. Oh, the freedom you have granted by your endless grace and mercy displayed in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus the Christ, the only Son of God. How can we adequately express our wonder and awe at your marvelous plan? It was all done to save us, your people trapped in sin and by sin, and then rescued by your wondrous sacrifice, by your defeat of death for eternity. We thank you for giving us your holy law, for by it we gain understanding of who you are and who we are. As it is written, the law of the Lord is perfect. But not only that, it is written that this perfect law has the effect of reviving the soul. Jesus Christ, the perfect one, fulfilled the law in every way. He is holy, pure, and righteous, and he did it because we cannot keep the law for even one day. Who among us can be perfect for even a short time? No one, no one can, not even one. Lord, we know this breaking of the law, the law of, of you, a holy God, has grave consequences for the result of sin is being condemned to eternal death, and that's the penalty you have set, the only payment for sin is death. And before Jesus came, us sinners could cover the penalty of death for a short time by substituting something else to pay the penalty instead, in this case, the sacrifice of an animal. But this was temporary. All praise to you, God, that you gave a permanent solution. Even while mankind wantonly sinned against you, you came to earth and willingly received the devastating effects of our sin in your body and soul. All of our filth poured onto you. How can that be? 
And in the sacrifice of your only begotten son, Jesus, you paid the price for our sin once for all time. One sacrifice for the forgiveness of all of our sin. All praises to you. And all praise to you that you did not stop there. But you brought Jesus back to life, defeating death to live forever and promising us to live forever with you upon the death of our earthly bodies. So we worship you with all that we have. We thank you in complete humility, for we remain imperfect, and we are completely unworthy to receive this unfathomable gift. For we still sin, we still fall short of your holy standard, and therefore that's why we revel in your forgiveness. So help us to daily, hourly, minute by minute, dwell on the reality that this is only accomplished by you. We are declared righteous only by your finished work on the cross and by you giving us the gift of faith. In living out this faith, would you please enable us to bless you, help us to honor you, help us to bring you glory. And we pray too that those brothers and sisters who are of this body of believers but are not physically present, that they would hold fast to you in every way. Please be with them. And please guide us this morning as we continue to preach your word. Please move the, the minds and the lips of Pastor Lewis and Pastor Rob as they bring the scriptures to us. And Father, let us hear with open ears and open minds. We thank you for blessing us so abundantly. We pray all things in the name of Jesus the Christ. Amen. So as we continue, we see that the penalty of sin was death. Dr. Michael Vlock describes the disobedience of Adam and Eve as a statement of autonomy and a declaration of independence from the Creator. Adam and Eve doubted God's truthfulness and His goodness, and they focused instead on their own desires and their own hopes and aspirations. Instead of putting their faith and trust and their hope in the Creator, they chased after their own dreams. Instead of working and cultivating the earth, Adam and Eve's rebellion opened the door to sin that has been destroying all of creation ever since. Spiritually, relationally, physically, mentally. See, so what you and I needed was the gospel. If the penalty of sin is death, as, as the song stated there, how deep the Father's love is, and how Randy preached, is what you and I needed was someone to die for us, a substitute. And that's what the gospel is. And you and I need the gospel, and this is what the resurrection of Jesus is all about. The gospel is not about self-esteem, about finding the better you. It's not about self-realization, finding the real you. It's not about self-improvement, learning how to be a better person, or about self-righteousness, earning your own salvation. Unfortunately, many times, that's how the gospel is presented. However, to many, Christ is a solution, but it's a solution to a problem. Or he's a therapist, or he's a source of moral conduct, but he's not a savior. To be a savior demands too much. What you and I want to do is we have our problems and what we want to do with Jesus is we just want to add him to our problems and, and stir it around and pray that life will get better. He's just an addition, but 
He's much more than that. You see, they see the gospel as a quaint story or an intolerant of people's lifestyle and choices, so they deny it, they disregard it. But you, you and I have to understand on this Easter morning as we celebrate the resurrection of Christ is that the gospel is the basis of our hope. That God, we can expect him confidently to fulfill his promises. And so with that, I want to give you three promises of the gospel if you're taking notes or just to bring your attention. So I want to give you three promises of the gospel. Three promises of hope that's found in the gospel. The first one is the promise of a redeemer to restore all things. Remember, that was one of the things that we wanted. We, we need things to be restored. Well, scripture tells us immediately after Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis 3.15, God says, I will put enmity between you and the women, speaking about snake, the, the, the demon, the Satan. And he says, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In that first moment, we get the promise of a savior, the hope, the confident expectation that God is going to restore all things to being very good. Since our first parents rebelled against this holy, wonderful creator, Paul tells us in his letter to the Roman church that you and I are guilty and that we're without excuse. For Adam's sin has been passed down through the ages. And you say, well, that's not fair. I, I did not rebel against God as Adam did, but we did. You see, he was our federal head. That's a, you know, a special way or, a, you know, a way of saying what he stood in our place. He represented us. And what he did went down to all of us, just as Jesus was the federal head, the federal substitute for us. So sin has been passed down through generation through generation through all those who are born. Like Adam, we have sinned, showing our very nature and our attitude and our actions because that's how we are. Meaning our nature, our attitudes, and our actions are all marred by a rebellion and a desire to be our own God. So whether or not you were there with Adam and Eve, we have made that same choice each and every day with our attitudes and our actions. Because of this, God's wrath has been promised to be poured out on all of creation, man and woman, animal and earth alike. So you and I need a redeemer to redeem us from this rebellion, to restore all things to very good to restore all of creation. And God promises to do that in Genesis 3.15. You see, this is the hope of the Old Testament. It's the hope of the prophets of the Jewish people. And God fulfilled that promise when he sent his son, Jesus. We know this passage of scripture. If you've ever watched any sports program, you know John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This is the gift of God. Jesus himself came to be our substitute to pay that penalty that you and I rightly deserve. But not only is there a promise of a restorer to restore all things in the gospel, but our hope in the gospel is also means that there's a promise, number two, to release his children from the penalty and the power and the presence of sin. Think of all the troubles and all the difficulties and the problems of life. Where do they come from? Why is there hatred? Why is there anger? Why are there school shootings and wars and temptations and sickness and death and tornadoes and hurricanes and all the natural disasters that you and I see? It's because of sin. Suffering is a hallmark of life now, 
today and tomorrow and yesterday. And you and I all bear the scars of sin in our life. We hope for relief and an end. And that's what the gospel did as Christ came to be that substitute. He gives us the promise to release us from not only the penalty of sin, but also the power and the presence of sin. Look at the scripture there, Colossians chapter 2, one of my favorite portions of scripture. And he's speaking of us and says, you, and you can put your name in there in the scripture. And you who were dead in your trespasses, meaning that you were spiritually dead in your sin. And the uncircumcision of your flesh, meaning that you were not made alive yet. He says, God has made alive together with him. Speaking of Jesus, is that when we trust in Jesus, he now makes those that were dead, he makes them alive. Having forgiven us all of our trespasses. What does he mean? All of our sins. All of our heart attitudes. Those things that are spoken, the things that are unspoken. The things done, the things undone. He says, I have forgiven them all things to what they've done in the past, what they're involved in now, and what they will do. He says, I've forgiven us all your trespasses. How? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. What's the legal demands? You are guilty, and the guilty must die. So Christ, as he's on that cross, not only forgives us of our trespasses, but also canceled the debt. He said, it's no longer there. You are forgiven. That everything is in balance. It's been reconciled. But he all goes on to say, this, he set aside, what? The legal demands, our sin, by nailing it to the cross. That's what happened when Jesus, it wasn't just his arms and his legs that they nailed, but in doing so, he nailed our sins. Our penalty was nailed up there with him. But not only did, that, did he do that, but he says he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them. He's speaking about the spiritual darkness. He's speaking about Satan and his legion. He's speaking about all those things that work against God. Are they still here? Yes, but there is a day as we get to it that, that will all be done. He is in the process now of doing that. You see, what you and I need, though, is not a temporary relief. And that's what we do. We look for temporary relief. But that's not solving the main issue. You and I need a final solution, an end to the devastating effects of sin. And that's how you and I live our lives, is if we have troubles in our marriage, or if we have troubles in our finances, or troubles in some type of relationship, you and I look for ways and solutions to give us some temporary relief. But if you don't solve the problem that got you there in the first place, what happens is that relief gives you just a moment of joy and maybe a moment of happiness, but then, and again, it evaporates. And you're back in the same position looking for relief. See, God has promised you more than just relief. The fact that he died and he rose again says that you and I now have a final solution. No longer do you have to deal with that. And that's what you and I need is an end to the devastating effects of sin in our marriages, in our relationships, in our finances, even in the earth itself. That is the promise of God. You see, the Apostle Paul writes that while you and I are still in this tent, speaking of this human body, flesh and bone, he says you and I are being burdened. 
And he goes on to say that we know that the whole creation, speaking of the earth itself, has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Hurricanes, tornadoes, earthquakes. The earth itself is waiting for it to be renewed in the promise of God. You see, the problem is you and I need our sins wiped out, not judged by God. The solution is found in Christ who suffers and he bears our penalty and then he earns our righteousness. In Ephesians 1.7, Paul writes that in Christ we have redemption through his blood, redemption, redeeming, taking us back, the forgiveness of our trespasses. But you and I must understand that forgiveness is not enough. We both need God's forgiveness, but we also need God's righteousness, Christ's righteousness. Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, as you bring your attention to the monitor once again, Paul writes, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation of all men, speaking of Adam's, because Adam sinned here, we are now all condemned. But he goes on, so one act of righteousness, speaking of Christ's righteousness, his 33 years of living perfectly and obeying God and going to the cross obedient to death, it says, leads to justification being made right with God and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So Jesus, as our substitute, comes, and with that, he can make us right with God. There's a great exchange. Many of you know the scripture, whether you've read it, or you've seen it in the movies, The Passion of the Christ, or many others, is that that time from 3, or what is it, from 12 to 3, that the skies went dark on that Good Friday. It was at that time that, that all of our sins were placed on Christ. And when God looked away or God looked at his son, he could not look at him. That's why Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He could not look at him because at that time, our sins were placed on Christ. But not only that, is then God took Christ's righteousness. In other words, all the good that he did, his obedience. And he said, let me take your sin. And he says, now I'm going to take Christ's righteousness and I'm going to put it on you. And see, so if you've accepted Jesus, he no longer sees your sin. He no longer has any desire to pour out his wrath, but he sees Jesus himself. He sees you as a son of God. He sees you as one who is not a sinner. Not as if you've never sinned, but he looks on you with favor. You and I understand that. That's what we need. To forgive someone of their sin or their trespass against you is good and dandy. We do that all the time. But yet we never look on that person with favor anymore. We still treat them with kid's glove. We we keep them in in check. But see, God now looks on those who are his children with favor. That's what you and I needed. Through obedience, Christ's obedience, you and I were made right with God. No longer are we enemies or disobedient children, but we are his children. And he says now we are friends of God. God. We are now both free from both the penalty and the power of sin that now we can now say no to our attitudes. In other words, our attitudes now can change as we taste and see that God is good. And we see the word of God and we desire it. We see his laws and we desire it. That's what you and I needed. And one day we will be free from the presence of sin. So we've been delivered, those who have trusted Christ, you've been delivered from the penalty of sin. You've been delivered from the power of sin. 
But we still look forward to that day when the presence of sin will be eradicated. That's the day when he comes again. With this, I want to come to the point that Jesus came in the flesh to die for you and I. He came to exchange our sins for his righteousness. Our redemption, our restoration, and our hope comes from the death of the innocent for the guilty. Not in anything else, but yet in the innocent for the guilty. I would like for you and I to pause a moment to consider the high cost of God's plan to redeem us. The suffering, the pain, the ridicule and the rejection Jesus underwent for us. One of the most wonderful words ever to be uttered were the words of Jesus when he said, it is finished. The Gospel of John records that immediately after saying these words, that Jesus bowed his head and he gave up the spirit. It was in that time those that are his children are made reconciled with God. Would you stand with us as the worship team comes? And would you lift up this song and consider that it is finished? We're going to keep reading through scripture. Uh, just to set the scene for a little bit. Um, this is right after Christ was uh, killed. He's in the tomb, and Mary Magdalene's going to uh, administer to the body. The Jewish culture had a series of things that they did when they were burying someone. So put yourself just for a moment in the situation um, that these people are in right now. Imagine someone that you love, uh, a child, a mother, uh, father, brother, sister, good friend, someone where if they died, you would really, you know, it would really hit you. These folks uh, have someone that they love dearly. They just endured a day of watching him go through mock trials. Sorry. They had to watch him get sentenced by men who hate him, who had no good reason to kill him. and you're trying to mourn his passing, and you go to administer to his body, and it's gone. God. There are just so many emotions that must have been going through their heads. I mean, you're feeling angry at the people that killed your friend, the person you loved. You're feeling sorrow at their death. And now you're feeling shame because you couldn't protect him in life, and now you couldn't protect him in death. So, knowing that that's where these people are at, let's read this passage of scripture that sometimes we can just pass over and understand how much joy must have filled them when they came to the point of understanding that when Christ said, I'm going to tear this temple down, and in three days build it up again, he was talking about himself. So, we're in John 20. Start verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've laid him. So Peter... Peter went out with the other disciple, and they went to the tomb, and both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter, and he reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and he went into the tomb. 
He saw the linen clothes lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded up by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the again, rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Christ had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have yet to ascend to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to the Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And he said all these things to her. And all the things that he had said to her, she said to them. So says the Lord of God. So here we are. Through music, through congregational singing, through the word of scripture, through prayer and scripture reading, we've shared with you the gospel. That we were created by a wonderful, beautiful God. That we may look on him and worship him. But we failed. Because of our failure and our rebellion, not only in just our acts and our attitude, but in our very nature, we deserve death. But God, being a loving, justice, merciful God, sent his very son, Jesus, the perfect lamb, to be our substitute, to receive the penalty in himself, in exchange to give us his righteousness. That's the hope, the expectant, confident trust that God is faithful to his promise. We now come to why not today, to the response of that. What will you do today because of what Christ has done? Now I've been giving you the three hopes that are found in the gospel, the restore all things, the deliverance of penalty, and the power. Let me give you the third and last one. And that's the promise of the return of Jesus Christ to rule in righteousness and justice. Jesus, before he left, said to his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled in John chapter 14, but believe in God, believe also in me. For in my Father's house are many rooms, and if they're not so, I would not have told you so. And I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. In other words, he will restore it to being very good. You and I will be delivered from the presence of sin forever. Scripture tells us that Christ will come again, and not only will he'll rule in righteousness and justice, but he'll also to renew and to heal. 
The Apostle Paul, John writes in Revelation, the last book of the Bible, in chapter 21, he says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He, God, will dwell with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them, and he will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall be there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. God, through the Savior, through the hope that's in the gospel, will renew and restore all things. Things in heaven, things on earth, and those of us who live on it. These promises are the Christian's hope. It's our motivation. It's the source of our joy. These three promises find their fulfillment in the person and the work of Jesus Christ whom we celebrate this morning. These promises are not based on wishful thinking or on a leap of blind faith, but it's based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why Easter is a high day for Christians. It's why it's one in which we remember when we take of communion and of the Lord's Supper. For the resurrection, all of our hopes, Paul says, without the resurrection of Christ, our faith, our hope is actually futile. You would be better off out at the parks or doing something different, just washing your car than being here if the resurrection is false. In 1 Peter chapter 1, we find that these promises are not based on just intellectual facts, though that's a part of it. You must believe in Jesus and who he is and what scripture says of him. We saw that in our pastors or in our catechism on the faith of Jesus. They're not based on flights of fancy or myth or legends, but on the very word of God that says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has made us, has caused us to be born again to a living hope. And that living hope, he says, is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He is risen, and God's people said, He is risen indeed. I pray as we've shared the gospel with you this morning that you would see the reality of our condition. That you would see deep inside your soul and know that scripture is true. Not that Rob is true. I'm sure there's things that I've misspoken, misclarified, or not said as artfully as I should. I've just proven to you that the nature, the attitude, and the actions of man is sinful. But yet we have a Savior. And I pray that he'll redeem this time now as his spirit works within your heart to realize that you need a savior. Not a life coach, not a motivationer, motivator, but you need a savior to rescue you from your sin. I don't know what your biggest problem, what your biggest fear, what you're holding now, right now. What is it that's burdening you down? It could be physical ailment. It could be death that's going on in the family. It could be a relationship. It could be financial let me tell you, your real problem in life is your condition before a holy God who says you are a rebellion against me. Without a Savior, there is no hope. For as appointed unto men once to die, then after this, the judgment. But in here this morning, we have shared with you that there's a resurrection. Not only of Christ, but those of us that are of Christ that all things will be made new. It would be very good. The resurrection is unique to the Christian faith. 
No other religion claims that their leader, their savior has been raised from the dead. Without the resurrection, Paul writes, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, then we are most people to be pitied. Without the resurrection, our faith is futile. Our hope is built on nothing more than just wishful thinking on a moral code. However, God tells us that as by man came death, by man has also come the resurrection of life. For as in Adam all have died, so also in Christ shall be made alive. And I pray today that you'll be made alive, if not already, or that you'll recommit to the cause and the things of Christ. The message of the resurrection, right, uh, Paul Measley Murray writes in his book in the Easter Gospel says that the Easter Gospel is good news because it proclaims that Jesus is alive. The tomb was empty. The Lord appeared to Peter and the other disciples. Jesus Christ is the same today, yesterday, and forever. Secondly, he says the Easter Gospel is good news because it proclaims a risen Savior. Our sins have been forgiven. God has set his seal of approval on the crucified Jesus. And he was raised to life for our justification. And that Easter is good news thirdly because it proclaims a glorious hope. Death has been swallowed up in victory. We shall be with the Lord forever. Jesus has brought life and immortality to life. And of no less importance, he writes fourthly, the Easter gospel is good news because it proclaims a present power. The risen Lord Jesus is present with his people today. Already in the here and now, you and I may begin to share in the risen life of Jesus. And as a, as a group of people who come here to submit to Christ, that's what we're doing this very morning. Here is the good news. The resurrection is more than just a past event and a future prospect. It's a present reality. And that's what I want to challenge you today. Would you live out the resurrection? Why not today? Our response to the resurrection of Christ should be the same as, as Martha was when he says, Lord, when he says, uh, Jesus says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And he asks her, do you believe this? And here's the response I'm asking for you this morning. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ the Son of God, who is coming into the world. He has also called us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled and upright and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, that confident expectation that Christ is coming again to restore us, to renew us, and to heal us. Why not today? That was the title of the message this morning. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, the Apostle Paul quotes Jesus when he says, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Let me ask, are you ready to accept him today? Are you ready to acquire the salvation that Christ has given us for today? Are you ready to accept your need for a Savior? Are you ready to see yourself for who you truly are, to take off that mask? And recognize your heart? Are you ready to repent of your dead works? Recognizing that no matter how much good you do, you'll never be good enough for God. For we fail in every way. We're short of the glory of God. And are you ready to trust and accept that God has accepted the works of Christ for your behalf? It's believing in that Jesus has died for your sins. 
And not only that, that he's rose again and that he's calling you to himself to take up your cross, to deny yourself and to follow him. The Bible says, whosoever believeth on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, it's more than just believing that Jesus is a historical person. I don't think anyone here would deny it. But would you believe that Jesus died for your sin? Or are you ready just to die for yourself? Are you ready to take that penalty yourself? Let me ask you, what is stopping you today from accepting this wonderful gift of God? What else do you want to accomplish in life? What else do you want to do to satisfy yourself? You've been grasping for air and grasping for dreams and aspirations that evaporate. They have not brought the joy and happiness. Not only that, whatever joy and happiness they may bring today, you cannot take take with you in the judgment day. Are you ready? Why not? What must else do you do? What's on your agenda? Would you not accept him today? For the day is the day of salvation. Do not wait another moment. Tomorrow is not promised to you. You understand that. Nor is one more second. Jesus said, if you're hungry or thirst, come unto me. Jesus said, come to me all who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Please, why not today? Do not delay. Would you come and accept what he's done? today. I'm just going to ask with every bed, how, head bowed and eyes closed just for a moment. I want to address a few different people here this morning. If you're here and you're a believer, you've accepted what Christ has done and you're a child of God, the Bible commands us to hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. God has encouraged you and I to be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord our labor is not in vain. Would you continue in the hope that you were called? If you're here this morning, you're a seeker. You're looking for answers. Your response this morning to God's word is to repent and turn to God in faith. The Bible gives you the good news that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and if you believe in your heart that God has raised Jesus from the dead and that you will be saved and that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I call you that to this morning in a little bit. Randy and and, um, uh, Landon will be up here in the front as we dismiss. If you want to know more about how to know Christ, would you come forward? Would you put on that little welcome slip? Hey, I want to know more about Christ. Would you please call me? I'd love to share with you more how you can know today that you'll spend eternity with our Savior. But maybe either you're here this morning and you're a skeptic. You're still not sure. You haven't been convinced. Then let me ask you, what's your hope based on? What's your hope in? Scripture tells us the point unto man wants to die, then after that comes the judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. There is no more sacrifice for sin. You're not promised to tomorrow. I know you may still have questions and you're still looking for answers, but again, the hope for the believer is now that we see in a mirror dimly, but one day we will know face to face with God. For I shall know in part, but now then I shall fully know. The Apostle Paul writes, or Peter writes, that Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world and he's been made known. For the skeptic, I would say, continue to 
to ask questions, look for answers. Open the scripture and say this prayer whether you believe in a God yet or still unsure. Just say, God, open my heart. Let me see. Seek answers from those that are here. But please do not give up. For today, I implore you to respond by trusting in the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ to be right with God. For John has says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you may know that you have eternal life. Why not today? Father, we come before you and we thank you for your love and your goodness towards us. That even though in our rebellion and our sin against you, you have made a way sending a substitute to pay the penalty of our sin, to deliver us from the power and the enslavement of sin. And then one day, Father, we look forward to the day when we'll be delivered from the presence of sin. And all things will be restored. Until that day, Father, keep us in your word. Sanctify us in your truth. Bring others to you. Begin calling some here this morning. Knock on their hearts. Bring them to you. Lord, that they may taste and see how good you are. Thank you for all that are here. And thank you mainly for the resurrection of Christ. For there is my hope, the confident expectation in your promises based on your person. We thank you so much in your name. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.